This is the E-Commerce Brain Trust, a podcast about building momentum online for established consumer brands. Join our hosts and their expert guests for high-level conversations about e-commerce strategies, trends, and innovations. Access our Brain Trust and boost your brand's e-commerce potential. Hello, and welcome back to the E-Commerce Brain Trust podcast. I'm your host, Kiri Masters from Bobsled Marketing, and I'm really pleased to be speaking with a special guest today about attitudinal marketing and first-party customer data. And my guest today is Vinnie O'Brien, who is a multi-channel e-commerce consultant with multi-category experience. Based in Ireland, he is the director of e-commerce at a D2C outdoors brand called Crua Outdoors and runs a conference in the southwest of Ireland called the E-Commerce Summit. And Vinny is someone who I really love to follow on LinkedIn over the past couple of months and in the coming months, I'm really bringing on all of my all of my favorite people to follow on, on LinkedIn to maybe improve your LinkedIn feed. I know that my experience with LinkedIn just improved dramatically when I actually started following a lot of people in the space who contribute really thoughtfully to the discussions in our industry. And Vinny is one of those people. So in today's conversation, we're talking about different skill sets required in e-commerce, the death of the third-party cookie and what that means for brands. How can you actually acquire your own first-party data so that you're not reliant on cookies in the future? And two of Vinny's favorite topic, another one of Vinny's favorite topic attitudinal marketing, which is something that I I didn't really know much about before our discussion. So I hope you enjoy my conversation with Vinny O'Brien. And the real first place I kind of saw that type of marketing evolving was when I was working at eBay. Just as I was leaving, there was a shift in the behavior and they'd identified that the browsing behavior was driven by certain attitudes. So they, they divided up the category structure and the, the, the acquisition of brands according to those attitudes and behaviors that were being demonstrated on, on the site. And I thought that was really fascinating. And they've continued it since. I, I think, if memory serves me right, that was under John Donahue. And it's interesting that he's taken quite a lot of that approach and brought, brought it to Nike as well. So I think as a long-term investment in from a brand's perspective, I could see how it makes sense. So let me play devil here and press a little bit on the intended behavior of the the customer here and I think this is something that consumers will report on pretty often is a bias towards sort of ethical factors in in purchasing but often the actual purchase data shows otherwise and that there is more of a bias towards price and value than anything else so I guess that's the challenge with predictive future behavior research is that we're generally not the best predictors of our future behavior and you know some of these things can should be taken with a grain of salt so i'm just wondering if you know do you have more conviction on this kind of data than what you might otherwise attribute to predictive future behavior surveys it's an interesting one because even if i put myself in the context of being a consumer my behavior is very different to my my work attitude. And I always find that that's a good barometer of how I should think about consumers. But if if we look at 
at it specifically, it's allowing us just to adjust the type of marketing that we do. So the difference between search and, and, and discovery behaviors are really what I'm interested in in that sense is that we can still serve the traditional transactional behavior as we always have done. On the attitude side of things, I think what we can understand is that there's there's shifting behaviors and prerogatives. And I think the ultimate barometer of, of what you've said was if we put a tax on transactions based on the environmental impact of the brands we work with, it would be really interesting to see how the customer behavior corresponds then. And I think we know the answer. But what it's allowing us to do, I think, is change the type of marketing that we do. And hmm. therefore, we, we, we need to start getting different skill sets into businesses, I think, from an e-commerce perspective. So if you take the idea of trying to tap into behaviors or attitudes, Gymshark did this really interesting thing. I was listening to Noel Mack at the the beginning of the pandemic and their whole idea was you know we selling athletic leisure wear clothing and during the first three weeks of lockdown the job for them was to provide at-home gym sessions for their audience and he said within three weeks of social listening they'd understood that their audience was now saying my mental health is suffering or i'm struggling with being at home all the time and they very quickly shifted their influencer program to start bringing in people who never would have been associated with the brand before. So they extended into yoga, mindfulness, mental health. And what that did was solve that consumer need at, at the start and really allowed them to understand the type of marketing they needed to do. But now it's evolved into new product sets, new demographics that they can talk to and presents a whole new commercial reality for them. So I think the point that I'm making through the behavior side of things is that we can now start trying to understand different behaviors. And, and that's only good to us if we decide we want to do something with it. Otherwise, it just becomes a platitude and something where consumers figure out we're not committed to what we said we were no more than you are. And, you know, everyone parts ways and, and we're none the worse off. And then I think the other thing that it, would, it will ultimately force us to do is get better at marketing communications. And I'll give a really simple example. I was, I was working with a wine company late last year and they kind of said to me, they're, well, sorry, they said to me, they're a sustainable wine company. And I said, what does that mean? And I kind of think that word sustainable is the most dangerous word in marketing out there right now because it means everything and it means nothing. So we broke it down and what it effectively meant was there was no, no waste product in the production of their wine. So every byproduct was used to, to make something else. And I just stopped and said to them, isn't that a far easier message to articulate than to try and get a customer to understand what it means that you're a sustainable wine company? Mm. Yeah, really great examples there. Thanks. Thanks for sharing those. I want to, if I can, double click into something that you mentioned, which was we need to get different skill sets into e-commerce. What's currently missing from the profession it's quite broad if i'm being really honest and it's something none of us talk about is the org chart of e-commerce so i don't think there's a defined guide to what it is but we tend to think about marketing without necessarily understanding our brand so i think there needs to be a bit of a re-examination of what the brand means to the consumer and and i i think if you look at the makeup of most teams and where the investment goes it's not necessarily into those areas or, or traditionally hasn't been over here the d2c companies that i mentioned earlier on some of those food brands they absolutely get it but they eat sleep and, and live that brand but you go up beyond sme and go to enterprise level brands the focus has always been very different and 
I think as well, from an e-commerce perspective, what we need to learn are some of those retail metrics. And that's why I'm fascinated on, I suppose, some of the groups that, that the group discussions that I see going on is that there's a really embedded sense of retail in US e-commerce and, and to a degree in the UK as well. And I see more brand focused e-commerce coming off the continent, which is a really interesting, which is kind of a really interesting split. But, but it's that softer understanding of brand, of the use of language, of, of why words matter. And particularly when there are so many channels now that we, we start having to tap into the way we utilize language in each of those is going to be really impactful on the outputs that we get from them. So I, I certainly think in that brand copywriting understanding how to turn an insight into something actionable is going to be a key skill that we need to bring in under the umbrella. And one of the ways I think we do that is by extending the metrics that we measure and say, you know, these are under the ownership of of e-commerce. Do you see that difference? Not really. It is a pretty open-ended question in that there's certainly a time and a place for analytics and benchmarking against past performance and category performance and things like that and just knowing are we are we doing a good job here and then it's sort of if you're starting at that starting point which a lot of brands do when they get to Amazon let's say because the metrics are really front and center every everywhere you look there is a, a metric or a benchmark that Amazon gives you for various things and some of those can be misleading in terms of their importance. So for example, advertising cost of sales on on Amazon seems like a logical metric to look at. How much money am I spending to acquire sales on Amazon? But when that becomes a singular focus of the company and continuing to to lower that and get that number down and down and down and how we're doing gets our category, let's get it lower than our competitors and lower than our category. Well, then you're sort of, you're putting your market expansion, category expansion plans at risk from that as well. So there's a time and a place for metrics. There's a time and a place for being really in tune to supply chain. And that's become even more important with marketplaces like Instacart, where being in stock is is the difference between having your products be eligible to run advertising and purchasable on the app and, and not. And then the branding piece is really huge, as you mentioned as well. That's also foundational. So I think what I often see is a big struggle for resources and and focus on each of those areas for folks in e-commerce and digital because they are all foundational. They are all important. And where do you start and trying to chase resources down for each of those? They're all very different things. I think therein lies the challenge. And and you've mentioned two or three of those skills like supply chain knowledge, pricing knowledge, understanding that a weekly ACOS metric is maybe not necessarily a trend or an an indicator that the business is doing good or bad. it's, It's an output of a particular campaign. But that's kind of the difference then between companies who think tactically about channels and those who think strategically and they're trying to figure out well what does a a channel strategy really mean for a business and i I think that definition is going to help start defining what types of people we need to get into those roles and the idea of aggregated content being available to to go across those platforms i I think is going to be 
a really key enabler of that. But I mean, the challenge for people now bringing people into e-commerce is that invariably, I just think that the the talent doesn't exist in the numbers that we need in order for everyone to have a really robust strategy with the best people doing the best things, measuring the right things at the right time. I, I think there's going to be a lot of upskilling having to be done in the next two years. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. I think there's a lot of, of valuable insight that exists outside e-commerce, but but can be adapted to maybe plug some of those gaps initially, but then to evolve the thinking a little bit. Hmm. Well, let's segue a little bit into a different topic, which is around the death of the cookie, which has been delayed a little, at least. One of the posts that I pulled up of yours on on LinkedIn that I thought was really interesting was included the advice to continue to understand how to best get first-party data into your hands, i.e. for a brand, and start using it across your business and campaigns. So this first-party data, what are some ways, perhaps ranging from most accessible quick wins through to longer-term investments, what are some of the ways that brands can start building 1P data? Yeah, there's a couple of quick things. I mean, lead gen forms are something that maybe not everyone likes, but but if you look at them from a B2B context, they're very successful. So actually asking consumers for data and letting them know what you want to do with it. Post, post-sales communication, so making sure that you've got a, a strong welcome series on email where maybe you can start enriching your data and finding out more about the customer and say to them, you know, let them know what, what we would like to know about you and, and what we know today. I think they're kind of some simple aspects. I, I mentioned earlier, I think develop a channel strategy. So, so understand where your audiences are, develop a strategy to be present there, and then to start using, using the information you can get from them to help shape the type of brand marketing that you do. And we, we mentioned social media there and social listening is a very effective and, and cost-effective way for people to start understanding what it is consumers are doing. If you look a little Tell bit more advanced. Explain what social listening is because I'm not sure that that's so so widely understood. Sure. Yeah, I'll go back to the I'll go back to the Gymshark story where the Gymshark team, the social media team were tasked with looking at the the kind of the type of comments that the people were making that they were engaging with, what kind of language that they used and and they they set up certain numbers of keywords to say, you know, how many, how many times a week do they mention X, Y, or Z, or is there hashtags that could be followed? So they gathered all that information in and were able to, to start determining the types of conversation that were being had. And they could shape their marketing to be involved in that type of conversation. And I, I thought that was a really powerful example. And the shift that they made, as, as I said, was going from being very internally focused on messaging that they knew people wanted from previous experience but now they were getting real-time information that meant that they could have really relevant conversations and kind of guide consumers to the type of content they wanted. Even Nike did at the beginning of the COVID outbreak in China when they they started shifting their content focus to helping consumers to stay fit while and, and, and connected while stuck at home. I think by the end of the third quarter in 2020, the active user base was up about 80% in Nike's apps and the overall sales impact by the end of the year was about a 30% increase as well. So I think, you know, you don't have to be a big brand to do this. And in many respects, it can be easier if you're a smaller company because you can you can take on board that information kind of quickly and, and do something with it that's useful for your business. Hopefully that, that kind of got to the nub of it. 
Yeah, no, that, that's really great. Just curious, is there anything that you've changed your mind about recently? Ooh, there's been so much focus on traffic acquisition that, that I think the levers of our websites are kind of the ones I'm focused on. And I've shifted my focus there and changed my mind to say, well, that's where I'm going to spend 80% of my time this year. So I call it the 97% club. On average, if we took industry averages of 3% conversion rates, I'm going to focus on the 97% of people who decide to leave my site every day and figure out how I can best serve their needs. So just to clarify, you're not focused on increasing traffic necessarily, but more on the conversion side. It's where the bulk of my energy is going. I'm not saying I wouldn't be focused on increasing it. That's kind of part of our channel strategy is to in- increase audiences through channels. If if we can, you know, even I'd be happier taking a more introverted approach. And, and like I said, focusing on that 97% who leave and try and figure out you know, is it that I'm selling on another channel that they want to, to purchase on? And th- that's what's really interesting about channel site. And that's really where I developed some of the thinking was, you know, if, if you're a truly multi-channel brand and you sell through five different online channels, why why would you not present a consumer? And, and I always struggle with this. I'd be interested to hear you, your view. If I sell on my own site on Walmart and Amazon and Target, why would you not give the consumer the option to choose the service provider that they want to deliver their product rather than not put up that sales possibility at all, what would you do? Can you repeat the question? <laughs> so channel side have this, this widget that you can embed in your shopping cart. So if a consumer wants to buy my product and they're not sure, but I also sell on Walmart, Target, Amazon, and somewhere else, that they get the option to deep link into that other sales oh, channel yeah. through my website. Mm. But yeah. I might I might want to like lean on my my Walmart free shipping or my my Prime account or whatever that might look like. Yeah. Why why would we not give them that option? Yeah, that, that's a great point. Yeah, there's a similar solution in the US called Micmac, and one one case study I know of is Elf Cosmetics have a Micmac installation on their side, and they they love the fact that they can provide customers with free two hour delivery through Instacart. So if you're making an impulse makeup purchase, then you don't have to wait a couple of days to get it through their D2C site, which is what their current SLA is. I'm just making that up, but it's 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 <laughs> not two hours. And if someone has an impulse purchase that they want to make, then they can get it through Instacart. And Elf has made a decision to be channel agnostic in that way. That's not the case for every brand. Lots of brands want to drive more D2C traffic so they can continue to gather that 1P data. Some of them really don't have a D2C capability that works profitably, so they would actually prefer sales to run through their traditional retail channels or Amazon in some cases. So it, I think it depends if as a brand you've decided to be channel agnostic or not. And there can be very good and legitimate reasons to not be channel agnostic. So, But making that strategic decision is important. Do people get enough info to be able to make that choice at the outset? Oh, I would. I doubt it. I think there's a lot of politics and things going on in these companies. I mean, it's, you know, very rarely a decision that's based purely on data and knowing you know, having a true view of the customer, I think that's that's pretty a pretty rare thing. 
And even profitability, one thing I've been working on with the Digital Shelf Institute is profitability and how do we calculate profitability in e-commerce? And most companies are not speaking the same language when it comes to profitability and how they look at the contribution margin from from different channels. There's different goals. Are you looking to grow the mar- your market share? Are you looking to, to have specifically profitable channels? Those are all going to impact where you drive customers to, which, which channels you drive to customers to. How do you view this halo effect of retail media spend spilling over into other channels from social to marketplace to in-store, for example? So there are so many factors that go into that. And I think really realistically politics and and silos within companies play a bigger role than we'd like to think. Sounds like there's a, a much bigger story there that you'd probably tell over a beer. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, yeah, there is a report and I've got a report coming out in a few weeks that I'll I'll talk more about on the show on that. There's yeah, there's there's quite a lot to it. But I appreciate being able to preview it a little bit right now. So, Vidi, thank you for spending some time with me talking about your points of view and things that you've run across. What are you working on that you'd like to share with our listeners today? Thank you for having me, Kiri. Probably the biggest thing right now is a national capability study across Ireland and the UK. I'll be working on between July and September this year. And effectively, it's across company cross-category study to understand where the next phase of training and development is going to come from, where the skills deficits are, where governments can help in terms of, of support and policy to make it easier to transact. So I'm, I'm really excited about that at, at a real high level. Redesigning the, the conference that, that I've run will be a challenge and something that, that I'm working on. And the relaunch of a really significant food brand in the UK in the next two months, I think they're, they're probably the three things that stand out at this point in time. And there is a, the one other little point of our third, our third baby, hopefully being born in the next three weeks. So that's, oh, that's just a that bit one. of excitement. <laughs> Great. And so where's the best place for people to find you and all those projects online? vinnieandco.com or follow me on LinkedIn I'm at Vinnie O'Brien and on Twitter at Vinnie and Co as well excellent so. we'll link to those in the show notes thanks again Vinnie great to chat with you and yeah hopefully we will be able to grab that beer in person sometime Maybe in our down lives a <laughs> yeah. yeah sounds good thanks for